Hello, welcome to the podcast on consciousness with Bernard Bars. Open-minded conversations on some new ideas about the scientific study of consciousness and the brain. I'm Nat Geld, this show's producer. We're here today with Bernie Bars, acclaimed author in psychobiology, including his newest book titled On Consciousness, Science and Subjectivity, Updated Works on Global Workspace Theory. Bernie is the originator of Global Workspace Theory, GWT, and Global Workspace Dynamics, a theory of human cognitive architecture, the cortex, and consciousness, and one of the founders of the modern science of consciousness. But first, we want to thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in with a 50% discount for any edition of Bernie's new book on consciousness. Just go to shop.thenautiluspress.com, and I'll spell it. S-H-O-P dot T-H-E-N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot com. And be sure to enter the word books, B-O-O-K-S, in the coupon code box during checkout for your 50% savings. Of course, they're available everywhere books are sold, although your VIP discount is only available in the Nautilus shop. This episode features two interesting student interviewers, cognitive science student Ilian Daskalov from UC Irvine and Aliyah Squara, a PhD candidate at Sarin Lab, Center for Mind and Brain at UC Davis. Ilian, Aliyah, and Bernie Bars will discuss his global workspace theory, GWT, which began with this question. How does a serial, integrated, and very limited stream of consciousness emerge from a nervous system that is mostly unconscious, distributed, parallel, and of enormous capacity? Global workspace theory is a widely used framework for the role of conscious and unconscious experiences in the functioning of the brain, as Bernie first suggested in 1983. And in this episode, we'll explore how we can understand the rapidly accumulating body of evidence on global workspace functions. Hi, Ilya. Hi, Ilian, and welcome. Before I hand the talking stick over to y'all, we'd love to learn a little bit more about each of you, please. Thanks, Matt, and hi, my name is Ilya Squara. Um, I am a PhD candidate in psychology at the University of California, Davis. I'm in the cognitive neuroscience area of our program. So basically, I'm a psychologist, meaning I care about questions of the human mind, but I look at those from a neuroscientific perspective. So the primary method I use in my PhD studies um, is EEG or electroencephalography. So a way of looking at electrical impulses that are generated by the brain and recorded at the scalp. My research focuses primarily on compassion and responses to suffering. So in the lab I'm in, we study the effects of intensive meditation training actually on a whole range of things. So your attention, your perception, your emotions. And I'm specifically interested in how this sort of intentional training can actually shift the way that we relate to suffering, whether it's our own suffering or that of others. And the primary question that I'm looking at in my dissertation is whether engaging in this sort of practice can actually help us widen our circle of care meaning expand the classes or, or range of people for whom we find it easy to feel compassion and care when they suffer and for whom we're willing to invest in helping them not suffer. So essentially expanding this, this care that we kind of easily and automatically have for those who are close to us to a broader and broader circle of people. And hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Ilian Daskalov. My initial 
academic interests were very different than the people present in this conversation. I initially started studying business administration, marketing, management, but somewhere along the way, I got more interested in human behavior than in corporational behavior. So eventually I moved to California and I decided I wanted to study the human behavior, the human brain and human consciousness. And all that began with meditation. And once I started meditating, I noticed a lot of things about myself that I wasn't really noticing before. And all of that got even more involved in my life as I uh, started regularly going to sensory deprivation chambers, which are, for our listeners, these very fascinating rooms. There are different kinds, but I, the particular ones I went to were rooms where they're filled with salt water and you lay in the water and you're sort of just floating and the room temperature is the temperature of your body. It's complete darkness. You're isolated from any sound. So theoretically, all your senses are deprived and you're just left with yourself and your thoughts. And it was very interesting for me to observe what emerged to my conscious brain, to what I was thinking about. And I started wondering, why am I thinking about these things? Where Where is this coming from? Where, where is this emerging from? So how did the, these unconscious processes happening inside of me because of my experience, my environment, my genetics? Why were they coming and I was bringing them to my attention. And that is a very fascinating field to me. And I am so excited about our conversation today. And I want to learn a lot more about human consciousness. So yes. hopefully. That's, that's uh, interesting. Uh, that's very interesting to hear because as you and Aliyah know, we do have an awful lot of uh, research on this spontaneous stream of consciousness, but it is, I'm willing to bet that some of your neuroscience professors don't know a thing about it. And uh, this is sort of, you're perfectly welcome to disagree with me on that, uh, Aliyah, if, if you wish. But my observation, and you can tell me if this is true or not, is that when uh, people talk about the default network, for example, in the brain, that my hypothesis, at least, is that they're talking about the stream of consciousness. And stream of consciousness is hardly passive, and it's hardly a default state. It is a very active state. It's a state that reflects our emotions and our current concerns and imagery and, and the cute girl who, who was the research assistant that put us in this weird position and so on. Uh, all those kinds of questions that spontaneously emerge and that we actually know about from, uh, from Jerry Singer and other people over a very long period of time who collected that data, except that the people who actually know about it seem to be sort of a cult. Uh, I consider myself a, a member of the stream of consciousness cult, uh, actually, and I wish we could uh, draft a few more members. Uh, so let that, me know if that's true or not. Well, I think there has been a pushback, and I think that this is a, a really interesting point. Like when, so for, for listeners, the, the default mode network is a network of brain regions that tend to become more active in the absence of an explicit task. 
And so this first became something that people talked about broadly um, with the advent of resting state fMRI. So functional magnetic resonance imaging, people realize that if you put someone in a scanner and you record their brain activity and you don't give them an explicit task to do, like press this button when you see a box of this color or whatever you know cognitive task we give people, mm -hmm. there's a network of brain regions that actually increased in their activity. And so this got named sorry, the default sorry. mode network. The, the, uh, the network uh, that increases is when they stop doing that task. Is that exactly, correct? in the absence ah. of an explicit task. So when right. they stop doing an external, you were instructed to do this task, there's this network of brain regions that Bernie was talking about that increases their activity. And mm -hmm. so researchers in the kind of the default mode network world we're like, oh, this is like the brain's metabolic baseline, right. as if nothing is happening when we're at rest. Mm -hmm. So there was this reference to the default mode network, like Bernie's saying, as some sort of mm. neural baseline mm. that you could subtract away from things. So like, great, when you're doing right. a task, just collect someone at rest and then have them do a task and subtract the two. And then we know what brain activity is due to the task. Mm -hmm. I think that there's been movement away from that, Bernie. I think you're completely right that, mm -hmm. you know, if we think about what our brain does when we're in the absence of explicit task, right. we're mind wandering, we're stream mm -hmm. of consciousness, we're doing all sorts of stuff. And there has been a movement to say like, no, that's not a baseline. That's a different sort of cognitive task. But I don't know mm -hmm. um, that people think of it in terms of consciousness, which I think, Bernie, is is your perspective of the stream of consciousness or conscious awareness. So I yes, think there's it, been it, a... I should say, yeah. uh, by the way, that if you look at Jerry Singer's work and the work of other people who've done that, not to mention all the psychoanalysts who've been doing it since 1900, what appears in the spontaneous stream of consciousness, of course, is lots of conscious stuff but you don't really understand if you're the person having that stream of consciousness, why that, just as you were saying, Ilian, uh, why that particular thought or visual image or, you know, kind of weird off off the the subject, because after all, you're not doing disciplined thinking, you're doing free thinking. So all kinds of unconscious and uh, primed stuff, uh, whatever, uh, all kinds of stuff is emerging. And because human beings are adaptable and because the stream of consciousness is a part of our adaptability, I would say hypothetically that the things that are most important for us as individual human beings are the things that would tend to come up, first of all, and most vividly, and perhaps, you know, uh, when we get drowsy, we have, in a way, we have the uh, the experience of uh, sensory isolation because the thalamus shuts down uh, sensory input. And so I like to pay attention to that moment in the stream of my own consciousness when things get really weird, you know, when you stop talking like an adult to yourself and, and some visual image comes up or, or some thought that is clearly not an adult thought, right? And it's actually a distinct moment, sometimes at least, in, in my experience. And it's kind of a fun thing. It's, it's, it's an important thing, actually, psychologically and in main terms and so on. But, but it's also, it's, it's a very safe way to play with your head. 
Well, and I think, or if I can jump in, I think this actually leads us really well into our first question that we wanted to talk about, which is like, how do we define consciousness? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And And, Ilya, is that where you're getting ready to go? That's where I was going with it. So here we are. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to uh, just... If you can, Bernie, if you can just give us a definition of consciousness, just so we're all on the same page. And You're going to ask me the easy one, right? Uh, we're going to start with that one, yes. How, would, yes. how do we define consciousness? Well, I believe the answer in the history of science is that you use whatever seems plausible and easy to observe. So if you're Galileo in whatever year it was when he, uh, when he started to figure out how do you measure temperature, for example, and this is in, in Padua, I guess, in Italy. Uh, I'm not sure if it was exactly at that time, but, but he figured out that, well, these uh, little bottles filled with oils uh, drift up and down when they're suspended in, in water. And the order of these little colored bottles that drift up and down, they drift up and down depending on their internal density. And so if you can put some stuff in there that, that has less density or simply lower the water level inside of these little colored bottles, then you can actually get a, a visual. It's not almost quantitative, not quite quantitative, but at least you can tell which is warmer and which is colder. That was the first thermometer, actually, if, if I'm right about that. There, was, there were probably all kinds of people, you know, working in smithies and, and making the campfire for the evening and they learned about colors and uh, of different things that you threw into the campfire so they knew about temperature at some Ironically, level. Ironically I have that one uh, I have that thermometer uh, <laughs> in my room actually. Ah and and so the the bottom line is that Galileo was very clever he was a very good observer he was very thoughtful and he was hanging around a lot of smart people as well, uh, and so this is, you know, this is one of the great uh, uh, places where ideas emerge. And so he came up with the first one, and he recognized, I suppose, with his kind of mind, he recognized that this was a significant thing because it's not just enough to see it, but you kind of have to recognize that here is a development in actually in, in human technological and scientific history. And that, of course, set the thing off. And so if you ask Galileo, uh, uh, what is heat? That's analogous to asking me, what is consciousness? Because we're maybe two, three steps above the level of these floating little glass bottles. And of course, the first level is is the old one. Can you give people a, a conscious stimulus? And will they tell you? about it and be accurate. So accurate, uh, the uh, condensed way of saying it, I think, is accurate voluntary report. And because the senses are so easy to study, relatively speaking, you start with sensory stimuli and then you get to Newton uh, and the the prism experiments. And uh, people were just in love with the problem of color early in the 19th century. And Goethe came up with his own seven-color theory, which, you know, poetically was supposed to be right, but turned out not to be right. And so, so they argued it out. They did the right experiments, and, and they, it grew. It grew. 
the sensory sciences came from that kind of thing and psychophysics and uh, all that kind of stuff. It's enormously important. And now we have uh, about half the academic population of the world telling us that we don't know anything about consciousness. That's not true. That's not true. We have a lot of good stuff. And of course, the our ignorance is a lot bigger than what we know, but we're not starting from zero. So what I'm hearing you kind of say here is that, in a way, our, our definition of consciousness is limited, or at least our scientific definition of consciousness is limited by what is observable. You bet. Just like before the understanding of heat was limited by what was observable in this thermometer, this kind of first thermometer contraption. And so we're right. very early in in some ways, very early in our scientific ability to measure what is consciousness. So when I ask you as a, a scientist of consciousness, what is consciousness? You can give me the observable definition, but that doesn't mean exactly that, right. that and is then consciousness of course, itself. Then, of course, the next step is what's called bootstrapping. Uh, and bootstrapping is, a, is sort of a humorous metaphor of uh, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps which is not recommended if you're climbing a mountain, but it kind of works as, as a popular joke because we go to the next step, we go to the EEG, and then we get the dreadful EEG from 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Like and then 20 start, channels and... <laughs> yes, exactly. Five, five channels, yeah. And and you lose track. And this is actually true. It's, it's a horror story. And scientists are not supposed to say bad things uh, about their own knowledge of science. But we essentially forgot that people have thick, thick skulls and that you get a 99.9% .9 drop in the signal-to-noise ratio uh, between cortex and the outside of the skull. That was not a good idea. And people who work with animals with tiny little skulls were able to get a lot better. But in any case, that that was part of the process of blowing it really badly and then realizing that you're blowing it and fixing it and getting better. Now, if I may, um, I know, Bernie, that when you first started studying consciousness, um, that was not what a lot of the people in your field were doing. As a matter of fact, it was considered taboo in a way. Oh, exactly. Yes. So can you tell me how... Uh, you got interested in studying human consciousness. And how did that bring you to coming up with the global workspace theory? And what is global workspace theory? Okay. Uh, basically, consciousness has never really left the natural psychology of everyday life, right? I mean, we talk about taking an aspirin for a headache. And that violates David Chalmers' favorite phrase about the heart problem, because after all, an aspirin is just a, a, a crystalline protein, and you pop it in your mouth, and then somehow this psychic event occurs, right? You're, if, you're, if you're lucky, your headache goes away. And that's the only way you know that in the old days, certainly, is, is there's a change in subjective experience. And of course, we know of many, many, many everyday things that happen, you know, you're hungry, uh, you eat something you like to eat, your hunger goes away. That's a subjective experience. So if you really look at the mythology 
that has arisen for weird reasons around the idea of having a gulf between subjective experience and the so-called objective world, which is basically the world that you can subjectively agree on with another subjective mind. So, you know, when you look at that, then, then there seems to be a gap. But even Gustav Fechner around 1800 was convinced that that was a solvable problem. It was not a metaphysical gap. And so we've gotten trapped in, in very ancient and very tricky word games, if I may say that. And uh, I think it's a disaster. And the reason why I think it's a disaster, actually, is because there's so many ethical implications of realizing that, you know, the animals you work with in the laboratory are, are conscious, uh, your pet cat is conscious, uh, the and so on. It, it goes on and on and on. And of course, in, in cultures well, that Bernie, realize I think this is that, a really important point in, in defining consciousness, right? That it sounds like you're saying pretty clearly that you don't consider consciousness to be necessarily a human-only construct. And I think that that's, um, or a human-only experience. And I think just to give our listeners like a little bit of, of context, you know, researchers and philosophers have been debating the nature and origins of consciousness for centuries. And so there are a lot of different theories about what consciousness is and what creates it and whether that's uniquely human, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical. So one of Bernie's major contributions to the science of consciousness is the global workspace theory, which I think we'll sometimes refer to as GWT. And in the most basic terms, you know, my understanding is that GWT is a, a hypothesis about how conscious experience arises from the mind and kind of more recently about how the brain might give rise to this conscious experience. Is that accurate, Bernie, in terms of when sure. we're talking it, about it? it? It is accurate. And please forgive my current obsession with the history of these ideas, because as I've gotten a better understanding, I think, of both the subjective and the brain basis of consciousness, I started to realize that Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, who is the charioteer, right, and who, who is conflicted, he's deeply conflicted about his obligations, whether he's supposed to kill his cousins or violate his warrior caste. And it's one of those Hamlet conflicts that populate the human literature and human folktales, of course, and then the god comes down and says, okay, here's the solution to your dilemma. And that's Lord Krishna, and that's the punchline of the Bhagavad Gita. I'm not going to go into that. But that charioteer is a metaphor for consciousness and especially decision-making, because here's facing a dilemma. You know, where is he going to whip his horses, his horses <laughs> in, into going? Uh, sitting on this big chariot with the bronze and all that fabulous stuff. Anyway, uh, so, so that's we'll, a, actually maybe we that's can a metaphor for consciousness. And, and pardon me, uh, uh, yeah. I'm just going to say that it's also a global workspace metaphor. Exactly. Okay, uh, because he's getting all kinds of information and he's got stuff from memory and stuff from his mentors who told him that he has to go into battle and risk his own life in order to have an honorable battle with the other 
warriors and so on. So he's got his own ethics that's been taught to him. And that stuff comes to his mind. And he can no longer do certain things because he's been taught, right? So when I first learned about global workspace theory, and I think that this ties into a metaphor, I learned or back to the Arjuna, Arjuna metaphor. I first learned about global workspace theory using your spotlight metaphor, right? The spotlight of attention. So for the listeners, this global workspace theory, at least for Mm -hmm. me, when I was in um, first and grad school, was taught as there's the mind, right? The theater of the mind. And most of the theater is in the dark. And there is a spotlight. And the spotlight of attention can shine light anywhere in the mind, And that area of the mind that is illuminated, that area of this dark theater that is illuminated, that is what is in our conscious awareness. And so there's this directed movement of our consciousness. So at any moment, only a small part of the mind is illuminated. But like this metaphor you're just describing where he can kind of go into battle or he can choose his direction, you know, the spotlight can move into different spots of our mind and bring Mm -hmm. that into conscious awareness. Is that still you know, before we get into the brain science, just conceptually, a yeah, fair conceptually way to think about it? Yeah, conceptually, it's almost right. And the reason why I say it's almost right is that I've always been troubled by the difference between voluntary attention and involuntary attention. Because a lot of the time, of course, you know, if you're three years old, uh, your little brother uh, comes up to you and says, boo. And it's involuntary, you know, you're scared or, or you're playful, uh, whatever. But it's not your choice to pay attention to boo. It is imposed upon you. And that implies that there have to be selective mechanisms operating unconsciously prior to that moment that bring, you know, that obnoxious little brother, you know, getting right in your face and saying boo. Uh, that bring that to mind as a high priority thing. So there's a lot of unconscious control of access to consciousness. So that, and the idea, of course, that attention is a selective and directive thing, while consciousness just is. That's a poor way of saying it, but I think it makes the point. Consciousness, in a sense, is thrust upon us. We, uh, We can do things to avoid it, but as a innocent baby, uh, we don't have that much control over what becomes conscious. You know, we, we, we need to pee and, and we just do it. And consciousness is part of that process, I believe. So, uh, so yes, go ahead. Well, then kind of tying that back to the metaphor, I kind of hear you saying that maybe there are, there are two questions to answer and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but in the metaphoric mm-hmm. terms, there's what is the spotlight? Like, what, what is this light that's shining down right. and illuminating part of the stage? So that might be like the what is consciousness question. But then there's also the question of what's moving that spotlight? How does it get moved to different parts of the mind? And those may or may not be the same thing, or are they one thing? What is, what is your perception of that? And maybe I, we need I, to get I into the I think it's a whole of it. swarm uh, of things. And, and part, uh, partly, of course, is that we do have some voluntary control. And as we get older from infancy, we gain more voluntary control uh, over our ability to pay attention to things about the, uh, the famous uh, Walter Michelle candy test for young children uh, where they're 
they're given marshmallows, I guess, right? And now you can get some more mash- marshmallows if you wait for 10 seconds, right? And so, and, and that turns out to be predictive of the development of voluntary attention later on in life. It's really, really important. And it's just so early. This so executive that's another, control, or, yeah. Yes, executive control is, is the technical term, and it's the right term, yes. A lot of kids in that experiment, right, use different strategies oh, really? to not look at the marshmallow, right, like to, to deal with it. So, you know, some actually yep. literally look away and kind of try to take the marshmallow perhaps out of their conscious awareness ah. um, as a regulation strategy. So that yes. I think is really, is really interesting and in how that yes. ties back. Good. Absolutely. Just moving your attention from one object to the next and just trying hard to not think about what's in the background. Yeah. Very. Uh, I, I really liked uh, the metaphor you used, Elia, um, when describing global workspace theory and particularly the spotlight. I was wondering what exactly moves that spotlight as well. And that brings me to my next question. What are some of the features of global workspace theory? We started touching on them, but if we can... Um, just elaborate a little right. more. Let me back up actually to where my own puzzlement uh, started on this. And it really was puzzlement. And it continues to be puzzlement, I should mention. So this uh, is kind it, of getting into the origins, Bernie, of how you first came up with it? it, it we, exactly. So okay. uh, uh, in 1980, when I had a postdoc at UCSD, with a very interesting group uh, that was doing cognitive science. And this is the first time that people use the term cognitive science. And one reason to use it was to get away from the taboo uh, because the behavioristic taboo at that time was too constraining. It was too limiting. It essentially made it impossible to make inferences based on the evidence that you had. So, the so there's group, a focus just on behavior and not on what the internal exactly. state was. So, so you got drawn into the trees, but you couldn't see the woods hmm. for the trees. Uh, and behaviors were very good. They were very conscientious. They were very idealistic, actually, because they wanted to change the world for the better. And so they were personally uh, nice people and all that, but they were stuck in this box they had imposed upon their own minds, usually with very good motivations, and certainly they were talked into it by philosophers who also took that uh, road, and by other people who who thought that real science had to do with physical things. And what physical was things. What was directly observable, right? And the mind is well, not. Yeah, but you're getting more sophisticated here. Uh, <laughs> Early on, physical things were sort of like a like a plow, and the, and the horses mm-hmm. that you needed, uh, and they would drop their stuff on the on the field, uh, which would help you to fertilize the field and whatever. It was very very basic. It was a kind of early Piagetian physicalism, if that makes any sense. Uh, the physicalism of objects that you and I can see, mm-hmm. and and touch and smell and 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 you know, get rid of if we don't like them. And so you uh, saw something was missing here in terms of the study of humans, right? Or the mind. Yeah. And, and you know, you're asking interesting questions that are inherently mysterious. 
as you know, of course, because the, what's called the zeitgeist, the, the temperature of the times, the, the feeling tone, the words and the ideas that came in, and lots of people were interested in consciousness, of course, but they would be interested in unusual states of consciousness, like what happened to you when you dropped acid, uh, or what happened to you if you got involved with the meditation people? Fun questions. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, and, and I actually, much against my own will, uh, got involved with TM, uh, mm. Transcendental Meditation, which was taught by a, a really wonderful man from India who we only know as Maharishi, Mahesh Yogi. But that's not a name. That's an honorific. That's a title, and people are given that title in that particular tradition when other peers within the ashram believe that the person they want to give a special title to uh, no longer has a personal viewpoint on the world. Uh, so, so then you drop your family name, and you adopt this honorific, which you don't really adopt it. Other people tell you that, that by now you're allowed to use that term. Anyway, so he came out to Hawaii, and it was the most stressed out place he had ever been to. And then he came to California, and it was even more stressed out than Hawaii. As you know, he just went along and went along and, and started to adjust his teaching to people who were not just a little bit stressed out, but they were super stressed out. And, and he had to back off on the methods he taught. But nevertheless, after about five years of being taught to doing this by my friends, because I didn't believe a word of it, after about five years of doing regular meditation, he sort of had a vague intuition that maybe there was actually something hmm, to Why is that? Did it give uh, you... Did it shift the way you understood consciousness, or how did it inform that study? I don't think I was thinking about consciousness. Well, I was thinking about consciousness in a serious way because I'm just interested in, mm -hmm. in let's call it the objective basis of consciousness. The word objective is questionable, but it's whatever we can easily share in the public domain at that time. That's the kind of thing, uh, definition we used. And by now, of course, what we're really thinking is, uh, what if we put 600 electrodes over the brain, uh, over the cortex directly, uh, of and some person in epileptic surgery where it's ethically allowed to do that. So we have hundreds of electrodes directly on cortex. We don't have to worry about this thick skull that we have. Um, and we get this fabulous evidence directly from the brain and then we can ask him to meditate, or we can ask him to go into a, a sensory deprivation experiment or, or do something much more subtle, and we can actually see things. Uh, so so like that, what can that is these a altered, revolutionary thing. What can these altered states tell us about what maybe people call ordinary consciousness? For right? sure. Ordinary GWT consciousness is, a, is, is very, very important. Uh, and then there are extraordinary states of consciousness, which are obviously also important. And so my understanding is that GWT was actually originally inspired by AI. Is that well, true? Here, here's the paradox uh, that I kept on running into and which many, many other people had run into. 
but I think they kind of shrugged it off as just as a fact of life. And I couldn't shrug it off. And the paradox is called the limited capacity paradox. And it's the reason why we see YouTube videos of people texting uh, or, or talking on their cell phones on the street and walking straight into a flowing stream of traffic and getting hurt, you know, and, and we can actually see this and there's nothing more dramatic than that. But the phenomenon itself, of course, is true not only for human beings, but it's also true for cats. It's true for all mammals. And it's probably true for all vertebrates, I would guess. That when you're, that when you're this, focused on some things, you miss others? Exactly right. It's it, We can call it distractibility. It has, there's a whole set of mental functions that can be grouped under the general term of central limited capacity. But then you have to know it includes volition, it includes feelings of knowing, for example, it includes conscious sensory percepts. There's a whole group of things that are included that way. And the problem from a biological point of view is that they're all dysfunctional. They all kill people. And, and they killed our ancestors as well, including early mammals and other vertebrates and so on. So this thing kills animals on a regular basis. It's, it's tremendously destructive, which means it's very high biological cost, mm. right? And so you have to ask, you know, what are the compensatory benefits from a Darwinian point of view? Because if there's no benefits, we wouldn't have that anymore, right? We would not have that kind of very limited capacity. We might have developed two separate hemispheres, for example, with two separate optical systems that can work independently of each other. And there are hunting spiders, I think, who have nervous systems that certainly look like that from the outside. Yes, so what? Four yeah. eyes and so on. Sorry? So, so the guess the question then is... and. Alien, this might kind of pull us into what are the features of GWT in that next phase, but because I think this is one of the major features is this limited right. capacity. But like, what what is it about this ability to be consciously aware of a limited percentage of, of what's happening in our mind or what's happening in our sensory environment that's so advantageous that it makes it worth missing what we're not consciously aware exactly of. Exactly right. And so the hypothesis, the GW hypothesis was there has to be a compensatory event in the brain happening. And the most plausible one for various reasons, including other people's work, of course, uh, was that there's some kind of very wide recruitment of brain resources that happens as a function of becoming conscious of something. So we're right. only conscious of, let's say, a single star on a dark night. But that fact that we are only conscious of that has immense consequences in the brain. And today we can actually see that happening. That's, I call that the broadcast hypothesis. And now, of course, we know that it's a resonant uh, broadcast because the 
brain system that is involved, huge brain system that's involved, the cortex and the thalamus, that only has bidirectional wiring, basically. So if you send out a broadcast, you get feedback right away from that. And what that means, given the fact that they're both excitatory neurons, that means that you can get an explosion Mm -hmm. of activity. And the only trouble with that is why doesn't your brain blow up? Right. Right? So I'm going to pause us here so we can start, so our listeners can kind of understand like the theory and the main principles. And then you started to get into, I think, what's some of the really interesting brain evidence. So maybe we can start with this like overarching theory and then we can go into the brain evidence. So in my understanding, GWT Mm -hmm. kind of began with the question, um, how does a serial integrated and very limited stream of consciousness emerge from a nervous system that, like you said, is mostly unconscious, distributed, parallel, and actually has huge capacity. Right. And, and so then we was, get that to... That was the first question. Right. Uh, so that was your motivating question. And then quickly, right. I'm going to say, like you just said, a key prediction that's generated from GWT right. is this widespread integration and, like you said, broadcasting. So maybe you can talk about that original question and then talk about that key prediction. So maybe start with that. Exactly. That you know, these the way these things happen is in a very subtle way. They kind of sneak up on you. Uh, and and you get intuitions and you scribble down ideas and so on. And and this is roughly how it happened. And my year of being with the cognitive science group, which was so liberating, and I got to talk to all these interesting people and and learn more. And then I got to the opportunity to get stuck on this weird paradox. Mm. Uh, and paradoxes in science, are they're a pain in the rear, right? Uh, and at the same time, they're often very revelatory if you stick with them, if you give them more attention than they seem to be worthwhile. If you're Copernicus, you stick with the question of planets, even though the planets are only, you know, little dots, and, and yes, you, they're sort of predictable, but they violate everything that you know about the universe because the Earth is rotating, and so you see the fixed stars rotating, and it's a very beautiful system. The pre-Copernican system is gorgeous, and it's a system, of course, that human beings use for probably tens of thousands of years to navigate because wow. it's such a beautiful system. Uh, and you only have to look at the North Star, for example, and then figure out where the other stars arise across the horizon and where they dip below the horizon on the other side. And then you get a kind of a compass that allows you to mark to uh, the, the dip, to navigate, exactly. And this, this is how the Polynesian navigators still worked uh, until... until they got their GPSs. Well, and so the specific paradox that captured your imagination, right, was this of the serial integrated and limited stream of consciousness with this massive parallel unconscious distributed system. So is that true? That's kind of the when you talk about the question of paradox. And then you have to remember, of course, that there were other people that I kept learning from. And uh, in the taboo of the time, people would not tell you directly that Alan Newell, for example, was a great scientist and worked for 50 years on this thing. 
uh, Newell and Simon uh, worked on what were called cognitive architectures. And cognitive architectures started in the 1950s with Herb Simon talking to a Dutch chess master who was also a Gestalt psychologist. And as a chess master, he understood subjectively, okay, so I think about this thing, uh, about the, uh, the Gestalt of pieces on the board, right? And I see this opening, and my opponent doesn't see this opening. So step by step, I think I can force him into a double bind that will make him lose the game, basically. And it was such subjective experience, I think, that nobody was allowed to talk about. Mm, right, in the so 1950s. that was the taboo. Right. And, but then, Herb Simon, cognitive architectures were developed over and over and over again. And the only thing they had in common with each other, as far as I could tell, is they had this skinny stream of conscious information. Right. And then they had this enormous, it was called memory, or it was called, uh, there were various names for it, because computationally people started to play with these things and, and learn things. But the, the paradox kept on coming back because the skinny stream uh, kept on going with this enormous uh, mountain range that was unconscious. Mm. And so that's what hit me. And, and then, of course, Alan Newell came up with the term global workspace for his own computer system, which demonstrated also that this was a very practical thing. This global workspace architecture uh, was stunningly practical for problems that were thought to be impossible problems at that time. Uh, and the reason it was practical is because you essentially put many minds together, unconscious minds together in the same room and allowed them to talk to each other. And they shared information and they found out if they were wrong, they found out that they were wrong, which is crucial. And then they, they came up with shared solutions that were better than any single solution that any single player in that game could come up with. I think that was a breakthrough and people knew about it. They were interested. And that was in they, the world of parallel computing. Yeah. That was in the world of, it's actually parallel interactive okay. computing, which is a little twiddle uh, on, on parallel computers. But yes, uh, people started to think about what, what happens if we have a whole swarm? Uh, of computers, they just began to even conceptualize that because everybody knew that computers were expensive. They filled the whole room. You had to have a special air conditioning system for it. And programming those, them was a horror story. It was terrible. To, you know, people suffered uh, working nights to make this damn thing yeah. do simple things. So, uh, and then suddenly the idea came about that, oh my God, you have Moore's Law. Right. So suddenly you have more and more powerful computers with uh, more uh, with cheaper and cheaper memory. And then the idea, I think, came around, well, what if you had two of them? Or what if you right. had three of them? Uh, and I think the, uh, the space shuttle at some point had six different IBM computers that were identical to each other, uh, running identical programs because nobody trusted these damn computers to get it right. And so they had them voting on whatever the right decision was for the space shuttle to maneuver. Right, so what, Bernie, just to give our, our listeners some 
like orient them in time. When was this that you were thinking about this when we when you were seeing these kind of paradox in psychology of the huge unconscious mountain with a tiny conscious stream and at the same time this global workspace of AI and parallel integrated computing that you started to bring these it's, together. It's really very interesting. I, I think I worked myself out of the behavioristic box, the, the mental box that we were all in uh, very slowly and by learning about the history of uh, philosophy of science mm. where people historically in science people keep on running into these kinds of things so this is not the first paradox that people bumped yeah. into and couldn't figure out what was happening right and the good thing about that is that paradoxes force you to enlarge the box that you've got sitting over your head and so you shrug your shoulders and suddenly started to see more the notion of information processing which was pretty sloppy uh, at that time, but it was sort of and a hand And what time waving. was this? Uh, this was 1980. Okay. And a lot of us started to think that, let's think in terms of information processing, because that way, at the time, of course, you could do anything you wanted to, because there was no restriction on the idea of information processing. Mm. It was just, you know, you could do algebra, you could do verbal problem solving, you could do, you could imitate a, a paranoid patient in a, a mental hospital, uh, which was actually one of the first AI programs, very important one, uh, because it met the, what's today called the, uh, the Tulving uh, uh, challenge. The machine basically, this very super simple program, was able to persuade medical students that it was an actual person uh, with paranoid features. Wow. And it was very clever. And it just shows you that the Turing test is not a single test. It's a million different tests, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you have to just work your way up to more and more fancy versions of it. Because we had one in, in 1980 or before 1980, I think, that was actually able to uh, to fool these medical students, poor kids, who, who were you know taught all the wrong ideas, of course, about real human beings. But nevertheless, they fell for it. Uh, and so they passed the, uh, the Turing test. I gotta say, I've fallen, uh, I've fallen victim of the Turing test myself uh, with its <laughs> yeah. most recent version which is uh, Google's assistant who would give you a call. You have this conversation like you and I are having, and yeah. at the very end of the conversation, the machine will say, this was a pre-recorded or <laughs> a message from Google. And no. you're like, I was uh -oh. talking to a machine throughout the whole time. So they're very advanced nowadays. Very, very but advanced. They, they are yeah. advanced, but it's, you know, that last reminder is still important because it's willing to confess, basically, uh, that it's That's not good. that advanced. So we, we kind of covered the core paradox that gave rise to, right. to GWT and the inspiration from the world of computing. Um, so now I think we could kind of go to the next thing that we were thinking about talking about, which is this core prediction Bernie, that you, you started to talk about a, a while ago, actually, which is widespread integration and broadcasting. Can you right. explain for our listeners, like, what does that mean? It means basically that if you hear a bird chirping uh, to the left of your head and you don't move your head, and the bird chirp 
actually physically travels around your head so that one ear gets it, let's call it a millisecond before the other ear does. Mm. Then consciously, you hear only a single bird tweeting. Even so that's the integration. That's the integration. And we're really, really very good at it because, of course, we're specialized at bird spotting among our other specialized talents as, as mammals and hunters and uh, human beings. Uh, so, who need, and of course, specialize in speech perception as well. And this all plays into that. So it turns out that if you then use your Macintosh computer to move those two bird chirps apart by more than 100 milliseconds, only a tenth of a second, then you no longer integrate. Interesting. So if we hear a bird chirp, just to kind of rephrase or summarize, if a yeah. bird chirps and it's off to my right, that sound hits my right ear very slightly before it hits my left ear. Exactly. But I experience it as a single conscious percept, exactly. even though there's a slight offset. Yep. However, if you engineer it so that that yep. delay is more than 100 milliseconds, I no longer hear it as a single conscious percept. I hear it as two different events. Is that correct? Uh, two different conscious percepts, right. Two different conscious percepts. There we go. Okay, yeah. Exactly. So it's not integrated into a single one. Exactly. And and that turns out to be a lawful phenomenon that works for hearing, it works for vision, it works for touch, it works for, I think it works for smell. It, it certainly works for electrical shocks on your fingers, for example. Uh, so it's a very general law, and it ultimately also works for uh, multiple levels of a single conscious event, like mm. a word uh, that you're hearing right now. And you're not just conscious of the sound of the word, but you're also conscious of the meaning at just about the same time subjectively. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe there's a little lag time. We don't really know. And it depends, you know, because the brain is very smart about these things. Uh, so, so now you're hearing a sandwich of different conscious contents uh, and the sandwich, you know, it has bread on the top and the bottom, but it has bologna and cheese and, and onions and so on uh, at various levels. And you can actually experience those at the same subjective moment. And that is interesting also, of course, and it is a feat of integration. Uh, this is something that your brain does brilliantly. And it only takes 100 million neurons and about a quarter of a quadrillion synapses to, to make it all work. So that is the point of integration, which really is remarkable that, that our conscious experience isn't in sliced up into little bits, but is this integrated right. experience. And then, so then what is broadcasting? And the broadcasting what role is part that? Uh, was sort of a guess, okay. but it was based in part on Alan Newell's work on speech perception and speech perception at that time was an impossible problem. Uh, nobody thought you could really solve it uh, because we don't know this as human beings who are specialized, uh, right, over evolution and over our individual development and our social group and so on. We're so highly specialized in perceiving speech that we don't hear the echoes, for example, that are right now hitting us from the screens that we are looking at because the screens are hard. And so the acoustical echo is going to be pretty good. 
pretty accurate. And at the same time, our bodies are absorbing sound. And this is not some uniform phenomenon. This depends upon the frequency. It depends upon the, the you know, the, this spatial sources, all that kind of stuff. Your brain solves it brilliantly. And your brain can solve it even uh, if you're 100,000 years ago, an ancestor, hominid ancestor, uh, and you're in the middle of, of a jungle where the background sound level from frogs and insects and so on and, and from birds is above 120 decibels, it might be 150 decibels in the right jungle locations. Uh, so we have to survive somehow as hominids in places that are extraordinarily noisy. And we still have to communicate with each other because if your three-year-old kid starts running off in the jungle, you have to be instantly aware of that, grab the child, protect it, make sure that it gets carried off and, uh, in a safe way and get out of there. And that's that's our standard human way of living under extreme constraints because child rearing for us of course is the great constraint on the survival of our species we spend about a third of our lives in childcare, and the other third of our lives is in being children and doing the running off so that only leaves a little bit of time 35 years on average a little bit of time for mating and politicking and, you know, fighting the neighbors, those kinds so of things. So do you think that might be the kind of like secret advantage that we were talking about of why it's worth having this hyper focus on a narrow piece of experience? Is that, is that accurate? Or what you're thinking you know, is this ability to keep a child alive, to be hyper focused for a oh, minute? Oh, oh, for sure. That That's a major, major part of it. But I don't think we know the full answer Mm -hmm. at this point. And the reason I believe we don't know the full answer is because if I give you a story of opponents, for example, which I just did, then I have to explain why chimps uh, have exactly the same problem. Mm -hmm. and, and they don't need quite the same amount of childcare. They don't perceive speech. Uh, they don't have uh, all mm -hmm. these other constraints uh, on survival. Uh, and yet they managed to survive pretty nicely. So, so now I have to deal with the ancestral question. This always happens with evolutionary mm -hmm. questions, right? You get one explanation, you think it's an explanation, then you have to ask, oh my God, how did we get And it's here? so easy to tell a just-so mm -hmm. story to kind of you reconstruct, bet. well, this is how it must have happened to, right. yeah, that's, that's hard to get into. Well, to me, yep. to me, it doesn't seem like consciousness is initially that vital for our survival. Because the way I see it, consciousness mm -hmm. is highly tied to memory. And given how our fragile memories is when we're infants and how little we remember, it doesn't seem evolutionary beneficial to be as conscious as we are when we're one years old. But as we develop our brain and up until the age of 25, it seems like that's where as we grow older, that's where consciousness becomes more evolutionary, adaptive, and needed for survival. Am I wrong to think that way? Yes, uh, and that's a perfectly good hypothesis, given the fact that you've been miseducated 
by cognitive psychologists who got this all wrong because they confused the everyday notion of memory, which has to do with, you know, remembering what happened on my first birthday, with the true notion of memory, which is that it involves those quarter of a quadrillion synapses. And, and so conscious recall is really important for human beings, partly because we're a species that teaches children. And, and, and so we demand, you know, you have to, you know, sing the ABC song to me again, you know, the little three-year-old child, uh, and you'll be so cute and you'll, you'll get rewarded. Uh, but the ABC song uh, is not the reason why those half quarter quadrillion synapses evolved in the first place, because that's a much more ancient system, as you know. And so what the synapses do for us, basically, is to contextualize each conscious moment in the appropriate way. And our recognition memory, as opposed to recall, is absolutely fabulous. It is so good. And I would hypothesize that in the lives, in, in nature, living in nature, it's probably more important to have really excellent recognition memory because nobody's going to come along and, and wave this nonsense syllable at you and say, oh, do, you, do you remember what the answer was to this particular piece of nonsense? Nature doesn't specialize in nonsense. Nature specializes in meaning. But you don't uh, want to eat the same poisonous berry twice. <laughs> precisely. Yes, that's exactly right. And we're so specialized in remembering the taste, you know, of the rotten meat or whatever it was. Do either of you have opinions on how we could spend the next, next little bit? Well, I've studied about global workspace theory in my classes at UCI. And I think some people get parts of it wrong. Yes, I've noticed that. <laughs> Can we discuss uh, maybe that? What, for example, oh, sure. people get wrong? Well, one of the puzzles uh, that I run into is, is people who get it so wrong. And they do so even though they are really bright, they're really well educated, and they are framed. It's, they're like, we were in the time of when behaviorism was really dominant. They've got the wrong box on their heads. And, and one of the boxes that appears to be very popular right now, uh, well, at least two boxes that are popular right now. One of them is says, uh, this global workspace thing is just the hub, right? Which means it's, it has incoming. It's like a traffic intersection, right? It has incoming and has outgoing. And once you look at the connectome, which is the street map, of the cortex, absolutely fabulous new scientific development, the actual street map. You see that the street map has hundreds of hubs. It has thousands of hubs. So what's different about this global workspace? And the answer, of course, is that I'm actually not that interested in the hubby part of it. Uh, I'm interested in the consciousness part of it. So global workspace theory by itself, as kind of a mathematical thing, is not my primary interest. I'm really interested in how human heads work. And there are other people who are apparently not that interested in how human heads work. And so from their point of view, this is this is a big puzzle. Why, why would one hub be more powerful than all the other hubs? And the general answer 
uh, was actually given by Jerry Edelman and Giulio Trinoni in the year 2000 in a very good book. And, and it has two different titles to confuse everybody. Uh, one of the titles is A Universe of Consciousness, a very, very well-informed book for the year 2000, right? Uh, to brain imaging tools. And basically, they said there has to be a, a kind of a functional core in the cortex or the larger system of the cortex, which includes the thalamus. Uh, so somewhere in the corticothalamic system, there's a coalition of multiple sources getting together and dominating this enormous street map. Uh, you can think of it uh, as, a, as a traffic, as a wave of traffic, the morning rush hour, something like that, that just swamps all of Manhattan for that period of time. And so it's a dynamic thing because it changed the location, the epicenter of the traffic wave uh, changes over time. It could turn into, let's say, two traffic waves if they split off, but then you somehow have to deal with the competition between two quite different things, which does happen to human beings in many situations when the information flow to uh, our sensory systems does split in half. And we can't really make sense of the combination of them, but we can make sense of each individual traffic flow. So you start to think about those kinds of things and certain facts emerge very, very uh, robustly uh, which is the other thing I learned from one of my great teachers. I had many great teachers that I'm just totally grateful to. And that lesson was to look for robust phenomena. People were spending hours and years and years and really hurting in experiments on subliminal stimulation, for example. And it took 30 years, whatever it is, to come up with a, even a plausible answer. And most of the time, people were just baffled, of course, because, because they were asking the wrong question. And they should have been asking about automaticity, for example, where you can see the information flow of automatic, everything that you and I are doing right now that we're not conscious of, right, is automatic, but we're not falling over, you know, and, and we're not going into seizures or anything like that, we're very well regulated, mostly unconsciously. So automatisms are very intelligent and very, very important. And uh, so, oh, quick, if I can interject, I think what yes, I'm please. hearing you say in, in what people maybe get wrong when they're thinking about global workspace theory and what would constitute right. a global workspace is looking for a single specific anatomical hub right. rather than understanding that this hub is dynamic and changing. So like with exactly. your, your metaphor of traffic in Manhattan, you know, if the traffic is the information and it's flowing and it kind of is all meeting in one place at one right. time of day, there's mm -hmm. nothing special about that and that physical space. Right. And it could be what's, what's special is the meeting of information, which could happen in any space. So this yes. starts to get into the neuroscience a little bit, but just conceptually, Mm -hmm. A global workspace in terms of the brain is not, from what I hear you saying, a physical location in the brain that this workspace lives, but rather a dynamic and shifting coming together of information potentially in different neural networks or different neural assemblies. Is yes, that exactly. And, and now you're catching up to the leading edge of the field 
because we're just getting some some really remarkable uh, articles. Uh, There's one by Gustavo Deco that just came out that argues that we're really talking about the rich club of functional connectivity Mm. in the cortex. And the rich club is the best connected club of nodes and links that are active, right? So they're functionally interacting, they're sending each other messages. And Uh, for our listeners, briefly, when we're talking about information theory or the brain, a hub or a node is a place where connections meet and these links or these bridges are the flows of information. So if you envision a city, a town could be, or a, a square in the city, Yes. The gathering place would be a hub or a node, and the Good. bridges connecting those different squares mm-hmm. would be these pathways or these links. Um, and this is used in, in math and in something called graph theory, which has been applied to the brain. So that's kind of what Bernie's talking about here. And is also, when we think about brains, different brain areas, hubs, and yes. their physical, anatomical, functional, whatever sort of connection, those are the links. Exactly right. Uh, and, and that, especially the math... Uh, on it, and of course, the very high resolution brain imaging that we now have, which is unbelievable. It's so good. That's really what's come together. And you're now talking about the leading edge of the science, at least as far as I can tell. And so this is where we all start to learn from each other and to teach each other and to fix each other's misunderstandings and so on. So every article that comes out, that's at or near this this frontier, this kind of surf wave that's happening, everything that's at or near it is a contribution or a potential contribution. So there's a lot, a lot to learn right now about the latest and greatest. Yeah, and it sounds like there's a lot to uh, the global workspace theory, and this is this is maybe what we'll start with the next episode. Actually, is this kind of cutting edge neural evidence. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and how this can relate to global workspace theory, especially right. when we start talking about these anatomical versus functional versus dynamic nodes yes. and these connections. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the next conversation, maybe we can start talking about about the links between this cutting edge brain evidence and how that supports or updates your understanding of consciousness in the global workspace theory. Yep. Uh huh. So, so that's perfect, uh, and thank you. That's a very nice conclusion, and it's also a very nice starting point for the next time. And maybe we'll do a little uh, backup next time and then, then get right into that. That sounds good. Good, thank you. As promised, to show our appreciation, we are offering our listeners a 50% discount for any edition of Bernie's book on consciousness, science, and subjectivity, updated works on global workspace theory. Just go to shop.thenautiluspress.com, spelled S-H-O-P dot T-H-E-N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot com. And be sure to enter the word books B-O-O-K-S in the coupon code box during checkout for that extra 50% savings. Of course, Bernie's books are available everywhere books are sold, although your 50% discount is only available in the Nautilus shop. If you'd like to discover more about the conscious brain and learn more about global workspace functions, 
please visit Bernie's new website at bernardbars.com. And I'm going to spell that also. B-E-R-N-A-R-D-B-A-A-R-S dot com. And thank you for listening.